We are in the book of Romans, and we are particularly in a section of the book showing us the results of the gospel. I think that's how we could summarize chapters 5 to 8 of this letter. And last week, Paul told us about one major result, our adoption. He told us that those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are children of God. We are children with the full rights and privileges of God's children. Along with Jesus, we can call God the Father our Father. We live every day with that amazing privilege. And as children, we have a great inheritance waiting for us. And it's that inheritance we're going to be focusing on this morning. The future glory God has prepared for us. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 1135 or the large print 1755. And we're going to read in just a moment verses 18 to 25. In verse 17, Paul has just said, those who are co-heirs with Christ will suffer on the way to glory. And then he says in verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is God's word. Paul speaks here about the weight of our future glory, the shape of our future glory, and the weight for our future glory. First of all, in verse 18, Paul assures us of the weight of our future glory. It is incomparable. I need to explain the word weight here. Often we use the word to talk about a burden or a worry that we have. So we might say, it's good to have that bill paid. It's like a weight off my shoulders. When we use the word that way, weight is a bad thing. We're glad to get rid of it. But there is another sense of the word. If something is weighty, it's substantial. It's worth something. During one of the World Cup games, I saw someone in the crowd dancing around 
with a huge inflatable replica of the World Cup trophy. It was only an imitation. And you could see it was as light as air. But tonight, when the winning team and the winning captain lift the real trophy, it will be heavy. It's made of 18 karat gold. Apparently, it's not quite solid gold, because if it was, it would just be too heavy to lift. But still, the winning team will have something substantial in their hands tonight. It's not going to burst or blow away. And when the Bible talks about glory, we're to think of that kind of weightiness. It's solid and substantial. It doesn't melt or fade or sag. And so now with that in mind, we can read verse 18 again. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's important to see Paul is not belittling our present sufferings. Paul has suffered intensely himself. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions a time when he was under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure. So that, he says, he despaired of life itself. That kind of thing was regular for Paul. He knows our present sufferings can be heavy. Rejection, betrayal, bereavement, loneliness, illness, financial difficulties, hunger, persecution. Those things can feel unbearably heavy. Paul knows that very well. But, he says, weigh that suffering against the glory you're going to inherit, and it's as if the suffering weighs nothing at all. It is heavy. But your glorious inheritance is so incomparably great and substantial that the weight of your suffering doesn't even compare with it. Why is this important for us? It's important because every single day, every single one of us is doing a calculation in our heads. We might not be aware that we're doing it, but we have mental arithmetic going on every day. And the calculation in our head goes like this. It costs me to follow God. When I speak up for him, or when I simply live in obedience to him, I may get laughed at directly, or I might just get written off as weird. That's a cost. And when I'm mistreated, not necessarily because I'm a Christian, but when someone wrongs me, it costs me to act differently than other people do. When you deny yourself the pleasure of retaliation in that kind of situation, that's a cost. When the circumstances of your life seem to be unfair and you want to grumble and be bitter and enjoy some self-pity, it costs to say no to that. 
It costs to say no to our desires when our desires conflict with God's commands. Obeying God is usually difficult. And so every day, all of us are doing the sum in our head. Is following God worth it? When I follow him, do I gain more than I lose? And here in verse 18, Paul says, I know exactly where you're coming from. I do that mental arithmetic myself. That's the sense of the word consider. It means I reckon, I figure, I calculate. And Paul says, here's the result of my calculations. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul says there is no uncertainty. The answer is clear. Weigh anything you like against that future glory, put the heaviest present sufferings on the scale, and you'll still find your glorious inheritance is incomparable. It's more weighty and substantial than anything else. Paul knows we all do the sums in our head and he wants us to get our sums right. Future glory wins every time. When you and I grasp the value of our future glory, we can say no to peer pressure. We can say no to bitterness and despair. We can give up our desire for retaliation or for reward in this world. We can say no to those things because we want the incomparable reward. And we're not going to let suffering turn us away from that. We will endure suffering to get that eternal prize. In 2 Corinthians, the same letter where Paul talked about being under great pressure, far beyond his ability to endure, He goes on in that letter to say, in the midst of that unendurable pressure, I did my calculations, just like we all do. And here's what I find. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. How can Paul say in the same letter, that his troubles are unendurable, and yet they're light. He can say it because as significant as those troubles are, they do not compare with the eternal glory ahead of him. And so this week, when the mental arithmetic starts in your head, take it from Paul. The man who experienced more suffering than you or I are likely to experience. And a man who was also given a glimpse of eternal glory. Take it from Paul. The weight of your future glory is incomparable. When the mental arithmetic starts, ask yourself this question. What can earth do to you If you are guaranteed heaven, to fear the worst earthly loss 
would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny, less a scratch on a penny. I think one of our problems in this area is that we all have trouble getting a sense of our future glory. What's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? We know what human glory looks like. It's about having your name and your face recognized by millions. Maybe having millions streaming your music. It's about being showered with money. Being in demand. There will be a dose of human glory on TV later today. A group of football players will win the title for themselves, world champions. Listen to the commentary tonight if you watch it, and I bet you the word glory will be in there somewhere. We all know what the height of earthly glory looks like. We know what it sounds like. But we struggle to imagine the eternal glory God promises us. And when we try to imagine it, maybe what we come up with is not really very appealing. We wonder, will it involve wings and harps and clouds? Sitting in our dressing gowns with our harps? If we are going to live for our eternal inheritance, we need some sense of the shape of that inheritance. And that's what we get to in verses 19 to 21. The shape of our future glory. It's a new creation. When I was six or seven, mom and dad took me to an air show. And the big attraction of the day was the Red Arrows display team. And since the air show was in Northern Ireland, the Red Arrows were not going to be taking off right in front of us on that airfield. At the high point of the afternoon, we were told, they would appear on the horizon, flying in from wherever their base was in England, and they'd do their show with their twists and formations and all the red and blue smoke, and then without ever touching down, they'd turn around and fly back to England. I'm sure there was other good stuff to see at that air show, but I was really only interested in the red arrows. I think most of the crowd were the same. The trouble was, the red arrows were not there. And no one knew exactly when they were going to come. And there were lots of rumors going around. They're going to be here at one o'clock. But one o'clock came and went. Somebody else said two o'clock. Now, if you're a seven-year-old boy, that is just torture. I spent the whole day looking straight up in the air straining my eyes for those red planes. Finally, we decided they weren't coming at all. We actually walked back to our car with me in tears. But then they came. And they were even better than I'd imagined they'd be. Paul says that's what it's like for creation. As creation waits for God's people to receive their inheritance. 
Look how he puts it in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. The word translated eager expectation literally means head stretched out. Paul pictures creation craning its neck, straining to see. And what is it craning its neck to see? The revelation of the children of God. What does that mean? Well, at one level, it means those who belong to God will finally be seen for what they are. At the moment, we look just like everybody else. We're weak and we suffer just like everybody else. Our hair falls out just like everybody else. It is not obvious that you and I are privileged sons and daughters of God, that we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. But one day, it will be obvious Our status will be revealed. Our true nature will be there for all to see. That's part of what Paul means. But there's more to it. The reason our status as children of God will be obvious is because we'll be glorified. God will finish the good work that he's begun in us. Today... At best, you and I maybe reflect a few rays of God's holiness. And by God's grace, we aim to reflect more of it as the years go by. But on that future day, we will display his holiness as we were meant to. So the day of our revelation as the children of God will also be the day when our transformation is complete. We'll finally be seen to be the children of God that we are. But the question is, why is the rest of creation so excited about that day? Why is creation craning its neck to see us revealed as God's children? The answer is because the destiny of creation is tied to our destiny. The day of our transformation will be the day of creation's liberation. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Back in chapter 5, we learned that Adam's sin brought death to all people. But it's also true, Adam's sin led to creation being subjected to frustration. Here's what God said to Adam in the aftermath of Adam's sin. This is Genesis chapter 3, God speaking to Adam. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. We hear those words and we think, that means Adam's work is going to be hard. And that's true. But the reason it's going to be hard is because God's creation is not going to function the way it was intended to. 
The land and sea and sky were created to glorify God fully. And they still do glorify him, but only in a limited, frustrated way. The ground produces weeds much more easily than it produces good stuff. Today we look at creation and maybe we are amazed by its beauty and its complexity and its fruitfulness. But we're not seeing even half of what creation could be. We've never seen it perform at anything close to its capabilities. We call England a green and pleasant land. And it is. But we've never seen truly green grass and trees. Poets go into raptures about red roses. But none of us has ever seen a truly red rose. We've never seen a star truly shine. We've never seen a cheetah or a racehorse really going through its paces. Maybe you think that your dog loves chasing a ball. But you've never seen a dog when he's really enjoying something. None of us here have ever tasted a properly good apple. You've never really smelt those flowers in your back garden. We live in a frustrated creation. The reason it's frustrated is because of human sin. And the one who frustrated it is God himself. From the day sin entered the world, God determined that humanity would not experience the full glory of his creation until his mission to save humanity was complete. And so creation cranes its neck, waiting for the day when God's children are finally glorified. Because then, creation itself will be set free. It will at last show the full measure of what it can do. Verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So do you see what Paul is telling us? We said earlier, if we're going to live for our eternal inheritance, we need to know the shape of that inheritance. We need to be able to imagine what it'll be like. And here it is. Creation will be liberated from its bondage. Imagine all that's good and pure and exhilarating in this world. And then realize that's only like black and white TV. It's like food without flavor compared to what it will be. The Bible promises us not a dreamy future playing harps on clouds, but a real future. 
more real than we have ever experienced. We heard it earlier from 2 Peter. In keeping with God's promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. In the Bible, the word heaven often refers to the sky. And that's the way it's being used when the Bible talks about a new heaven and earth. It means a renewed creation. And the book of Revelation tells us what we'll be like in that new creation. Revelation records the Apostle John's vision of the new heaven and earth. It's a place where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And today, we do get glimpses of that sometimes. We have moments of pure fun with our family and friends. There are brief times when everyone is at ease with each other. We see everybody's best side. We understand each other. And we feel like we're really connecting with each other. We do have times when we can laugh purely with no inhibitions. Times when we really do serve each other out of genuine love. Now those moments might be rare. They might not last too long. But we do know what they're like. And so we can imagine our relationships always being like that. And that's part of our inheritance too. One day that will be normal. Our relationships will be freed from frustration. Our future glory, our inheritance is a transformed, renewed heaven and earth. It's creation set free to be what it was meant to be. And our role will be what it was meant to be. We will work and take care of that new creation. And that work will be joy instead of painful toil for us. So when your mental arithmetic starts up again tomorrow, and when you start asking tomorrow, is it worth it following God, putting sin to death, pursuing holiness... Is it worth it in this situation? When all that starts, picture the shape of your future glory. As Paul says, consider it, calculate, imagine. And you can imagine it in some degree. It's the perfect version of what you already know. It's God's perfect world with all the degrading, diluting effects of sin taken away. Don't give up on that future reality to chase some pale imitation here in the present. The fact is, though, we do live in the present. We live now in the frustrated creation 
The hymn Abide With Me says, Change and decay in all around I see. That's the reality you and I have to live in tomorrow. So does Paul have anything to say about our wait for future glory? Well, that's what he turns to in verses 22 to 25. He says we're to wait with patient expectation. But Paul describes it in an unusual way. He talks about groaning. Look at verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul starts with creation's groaning. And he tells us what kind of groaning he's talking about. It's like the pains of childbirth. That's very helpful. Because it tells us we're not talking about hopeless groaning. A soldier lying on the battlefield with his insides blown out that soldier groans hopelessly. There's nothing ahead for him except death. But a mother giving birth groans very differently. In the hours of pain, her groans might sound pretty similar to the soldier's groans, but she's expecting joy at the end of her groans. She's looking forward to new life not death. Paul says that's how creation groans. It's hopeful, expectant groaning. And as Christians, our groaning is the same. We don't groan in despair. We don't even groan anxiously, wondering if it's worth it. Wondering if God is really going to deliver No, we groan with frustration because we know what's ahead and we want to get there. We know our weakness and pain is going to be gone someday and we want that day to come. We groan because we long for the freedom and glory of our inheritance. And as Christians, we groan because we already have a taste of what's to come. Paul says we have the first fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit who's in us, leading us towards holiness. He is a down payment of our inheritance. He guarantees it and he gives us a taste of it. And that just increases our expectation. It increases our longing. We long for the day when we'll finally shake off the dust of sin and death. But we might have a question about verse 23. Paul says we're waiting for our adoption to sonship. But didn't he say earlier in the chapter that's already happened? That's true. Back in verse 15, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So then, are we adopted or are we not? The answer is both. 
We are adopted, and we are eagerly awaiting our adoption. We are adopted in the sense that God has chosen us, and he's already brought us into his family. Today, in Christ, we have all the rights and privileges of sonship. But, we haven't yet received the inheritance of our sonship. That was clear in the earlier passage as well. We are sons and daughters and heirs, but we're still waiting to inherit all that God has for us. And at the end of verse 23, Paul explains what he means by waiting eagerly for our adoption to sonship. He means waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. We know that one day our bodies will be free from death, mourning, crying, and pain. One day we'll receive new resurrection bodies, bodies that are fit for God's new creation. But we're very, very aware that has not happened yet. And so we groan inwardly. We're frustrated. We're longing for that future glory. And that's good. One preacher says this, when your heart is aching to be rid of sin and frailty, that is not because your Christian life isn't working, but because it is working. Holy restlessness argues life. It argues the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. If you are perfectly content with this life, That's the time to be concerned about your spiritual state. When we live with God's promises in mind, when we love him, and when we want to be in his presence, how can we help being frustrated in a decaying world? One of our songs says, I long to be where the praise is never ending. I yearn to dwell where the glory never fades. That's a good way to be. We groan with expectation, not with despair. Or as Paul puts it in verse 24, we groan with hope, sure and certain hope. And verse 25, that certainty about what's ahead enables us to be patient, even as we groan. That's a very fine balance. Patient expectation. When a mother is groaning in childbirth, try telling her to be patient. But in fact, that is what happens. It's probably best if it's not the husband who says it. But even in the mother's frustration, as she longs for that new life to appear, the midwife works to calm her to help her take moments of rest so she can go the distance. The midwife doesn't want her to lose the expectation and give up, but she doesn't want her to explode either. The mother needs patient expectation. 
And even in our restlessness and longing, as we groan for our inheritance, we can be patient. Because we know our God. We know his character. He will finish his work at just the right time. So as you wait for future glory, and as you feel the frustration of waiting, don't give up. And just as bad, if you were to do it, would be to become cynical and bitter and world-weary. Don't let yourself become like that. What you're waiting for is surely coming. And it outshines anything this world has to offer. We're going to close with two songs that remind us we live today in the hope of glory. We're going to sing together, Treasure, and then There is a Day.